Welcome to Terrible, a Canadian true crime podcast. I'm Marie. And I'm Renee. We're two friends that discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare ourselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. There's lots of great stuff on there, so you guys can find us on Etsy if you look us up at Terrible True Crime. The last thing is it really helps us when you rate the show and leave us a review or a comment wherever you listen. All right, let's get into some updates. So the first thing I want to mention that I forgot to mention last episode is that now all of our sources for our cases, we're just going to put them in the description in the show notes. It was really long for me to list them all off to you guys, and I was getting half the pronunciations wrong on, on all the journalists anyway, so we figured this was kind of just an easier way. But if you guys want to either fact check or just read the articles that we are getting information from, they will all be linked in the show notes. So our update for this week is kind of a joint update, um, which I thought it was going to be more of my update when I knew that I was going to Toronto the other weekend to spend some time with a friend that lives there. Basically... Our friend group, mine and Renee's friend group, were four girls who, you know, met in high school and we've been hanging out, but now everyone's kind of dispersed everywhere. So two of us were going to Toronto to visit a friend and basically Renee, you know, the night before we left, uh, Renee was like, oh, I'm so, you know, jealous that I can't be there. I hope you guys have a good time, have a drink for me. And I was like, oh, like it sucks that we can't be all four of us together. We were on our way. And we get there and we're like trying to tour the apartment of our friend because it was the first time we saw it. And she wouldn't let us until we got like all of our bags from the car. So we go down to the garage, get our bags, come back up, um, start touring the apartment. And then we get to our room. The door was closed and somehow my friend, my other friend wasn't opening the door. I'm like, okay, I'll just open it. I open it and there's these cute like little loop bags on the bed. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. And then I slightly turn my head to the right and Renee's just sitting there literally with just a grin on her face like haha I got you guys and so she surprised us in Toronto it was probably the best surprise of my life I had absolutely no idea she did so good at hiding it it was so exciting we like the girlfriend lives in Toronto we planned this for like a couple months ago and like keeping it a secret was so hard so like I flew from Alberta to Toronto that morning and that was the morning of the like Rogers blackout Mm -hmm. like you know the whole day where everything went down yeah Oh my god, so trying to find each other at the airport, I didn't know what car she was driving, I didn't know her address, like, we live in two completely different cities, we talk all the time, but, like, I'm not like, hey, like, (laughs) what's your address, and I couldn't even have called an Uber if I couldn't find her anyway, so it was crazy and then we didn't know when the other girls were showing up yeah (laughs) because my phone wasn't working either yeah it was such a mess but it turned out to be such a good weekend we went out friday night had some drinks had some fun went out for dinner and then we did like this whole like wine festival and shopping on saturday it was it was perfect and the flights were not horrible like everything went pretty smoothly so it was definitely worth it yeah it was honestly like 
the best weekend ever. That's our little joint update. So we've been busy this summer, but mm-hmm. it's exciting. So we took a little break last week for personal reasons, but next week our Q&A episode is going to come out. And then the following week after that, we will be taking kind of our summer vacation break. I'll be flying to Ottawa and we'll both be probably hanging out and doing fun stuff instead of recording. So <laughs> just so you guys know. The last thing we want to mention is our Patreon. So we've had it kind of set up for a little while, but we haven't like done anything with it or announced it because I feel like we're still kind of, you know, we are gaining listeners and followers every day, but we weren't really sure when was the right time. But we got our first Patreon subscriber, so I guess we have to get it together and start our (laughs) Patreon content. So the $3 tier is available now, so it's $3 a month, and you will get a on-air shout-out and a monthly bonus episode, so we're really excited to start that. We are hoping that in the fall we'll be able to offer a $5 and $10 tier. Our goal is to, you know, have those be available, so including the $5 and $10 tier, there'll be, you know, the monthly bonus episode, the on-air shout-out. We're hoping to make a monthly happy hour that's current crime news, which we're excited about. And then 10% off merch and a free mug for the $10 tier. So, Keep an eye out for that, and we will definitely be announcing when we officially release the $5 and $10 tier. So we wanted to give our first shout-out to our first Patreon member. Thank you so much, Jeff, a.k.a. Brotato, for subscribing. We really appreciate it, and thank you for engaging with us so much. It's really nice to kind of have that rapport with you, so thank you. Yeah, we love when people message us, so message us with case suggestions, feedback, anything. It's really exciting for us. All right, let's get into some current news. So you guys know I've been following the Frank Young case. So Frank Young was a five-year-old who disappeared from the Red Earth Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. People have been looking for him for months, and unfortunately, his body was found. So I feel like I'm like giving this bad news to everyone. I, you know, I'm happy that in a way there's some sort of answer that people aren't just out there looking for him, but. I wish that he had been found in different circumstances. Is there any release on like like what could have happened to him? So all we know right now is that the RCMP is saying that at this time there is no indication of suspicious circumstances, which I would like a definition on this phrase because I feel like we keep getting this yeah. when it seems extremely suspicious. Mm-hmm. Like I agree. So I'm not sure what this phrase really means, but it says, the article says, as he was just located, further investigative steps will be taken, including working in partnership with the Saskatchewan's coroner service and an autopsy will take place. So I feel like all they can say is at this time, there's nothing that points them that's like this big like red flag, but Mm -hmm. obviously they're going to keep looking into it, which thankfully they will be doing that. And hopefully I have more updates for you guys. Poor little Frank. The last update is something that I wanted to mention because it's kind of weirdly connect, not connected, but like similar to what we're going to be talking about today. This week, a fake nurse was sentenced to seven years for impersonation. She was using needles on patients and everything. She pretended to be a nurse for decades. She worked in at least three provinces and two U.S. states. 
which is unbelievable that like she's able to fool like one place yeah. at the time her. specifically for impersonating a nurse at two health facilities in Ottawa last year. She was even using needles on patients, which obviously she was very unqualified for. You can't just be sticking people with stuff when you don't have the training. She's 50 years old and she pleaded guilty in January to seven offenses, including impersonation, assault with a weapon, and was sentenced Friday by the Ontario Court Justice Robert Waden. Do we know what kind of nurse she was? All I can see from this article is from where she was charged, I think. So I'm, I'm sure she held a couple different nursing jobs, but her crime stemmed from a short stint working at Ottawa's Originelle Fertility Clinic. So she was working in a fertility clinic when this, like when she kind of got caught, I feel, and this happened. This is where 20 victims she either handled physically or used needles on were identified. So I like, I think assault with a weapon is referring to using needles mm-hmm. on patients because like you're not qualified. And yeah. also for, God, fertility and all that stuff is such a stressful and like very intense thing for a lot mm-hmm. of people that I can't imagine like patients who are going through in vitro and fertilization. God, like it says here that one of the patients has had to go through therapy now after finding out that she was treated by a fraud. So oh oh, like the impact, like some people might be like, oh, that's crazy. But like the impact that something like this can have on, on the victims. Yeah. Like, well, so, so glad she was caught and that she's serving some time for that because that is the no, no, don't do that. I just can't believe, like you said, that she was able to fool that many, that many hospitals or, or clinics or whatever, like, what kind of documentation were you showing that was that yeah. accurate? That's crazy. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're a part of like a regulated profession, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Yeah. There's show me your certification, show me your this, show me your that. Like, so she was clearly good at faking it. Today, we're going to be discussing Elizabeth Wettlaufer. Elizabeth Wethlaufer went by Beth, and she was born Elizabeth Parker on June 10th of 1967. Elizabeth and her brother were raised in Woodstock, Ontario. Their parents were sort of normal working class people. Their household was a very religious one and was described as pretty controlling. While Elizabeth was in high school, she was active in the band and the choir. She also was the goalie on the field hockey team. It's reported that she was bullied in school. She is described as shy and awkward, but overall a good kid. Elizabeth questioned her sexuality pretty early on in her life, and coming from a very religious family, I'm sure it was extremely difficult for her. After high school, she began studying journalism. After about a year, she changed her mind and she attended London Baptist Bible College. This is where she got a degree in religious education. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone like having a full-on degree just in religious education. No, but I think those like very niche like religious colleges like have these like very different programs. Yeah. But I wonder what you like go ahead and do with a degree like that. During this time, she began to date around and her family found out that she was dating women. It's reported that she later underwent conversion therapy. It's unclear if this was her decision or if it was forced upon her. I'm saying this because there is so much conflicting reporting on this case, so I am probably going to get something wrong at some point because I've listened to, I've did my research and then I listened to the Fifth Estate episode, I listened to several different podcasts, and there's conflicting information in all of them. <laughs> so, Oh, love that. Yeah, so we're trying our best, but I'm saying this because one podcast I listened to did research and it said that she kind of, with the pressure of her family, checked herself into conversion therapy. But I feel like either way, this is not her decision, obviously. It's either pressure that she was feeling or it was forced upon her. So I'm just 
making that clear. And obviously, this must have been extremely difficult for her. Conversion mm-hmm. therapy is trash, and it's a horrible thing. Yeah. So we feel for her here, for sure. Elizabeth struggled mental health her entire life. After getting her degree in religious education, she decided she wanted to study nursing at Conestoga College. She became a registered nurse in 1995. Around this time, she was about 30 years old. She began working and bounced around a little from job to job. On top of her mental health struggles, Elizabeth battled addiction. Her addiction was to alcohol and painkillers, and it caused her to be in and out of rehab for most of her life. When she found a job at a hospital, she began stealing medication for herself. The hospital eventually found out that she was stealing the medication and she was obviously fired. She was also reported to the Ontario College of Nurses. This caused them to restrict her license and only allowed her to do certain things as a nurse. So I don't have kind of like all the details about this, but if they're restricting her license, probably mean that her duties would be very much Mm -hmm. cut down to what others can kind of observe. Maybe she's not managing medication yeah like she was before however the restriction was only temporary she continued to work the jobs that she could get in october of 1997 she got married to a man named daniel Whitlaufer. daniel was a long-haul trucker the couple had met in church they lived together in woodstock ontario Eventually, the couple began to fight, and it's reported that it was mostly due to Elizabeth's mood swings. Around this time, she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. This is another one of those kind of lots of information things, unsure what is right. there. She would get a lot of diagnosis throughout her life, it seems like. I don't know which ones are actually accurate, and I also, I'm always reluctant to like put a diagnosis on someone, because then if they do something negative, I don't want people to be like, well, it's because they were... Mm-hmm or like you know that's not that's not really what we want to be saying so i'll just say this because it's relevant to kind of this time in her life but she was diagnosed with many many other things throughout her life she was basically she was not well and coupled with the addiction you Mm -hmm. know it was hard for her to kind of stabilize yeah and i think a lot of people who struggle a lot with their mental health i think sometimes get like wrong diagnosis or get many different diagnoses from different doctors so it's kind of hard to like pinpoint exactly you know what's correct versus not yeah for sure so i think it's important for us us to keep that in mind and that's why like i'll often i won't like focus on those things or sometimes i'll just i won't mention them because they are they can be relevant but they also can just be kind of stigmatizing for other Mm -hmm. people that have those diagnoses so i'm kind of feeling like meh like we'll just we'll put that in but we'll we'll kind of move on from it to treat this she was put on antipsychotics towards the end of their marriage it's reported that her husband found out that she was online dating I believe that she was mostly pursuing other women. Eventually, Elizabeth's restrictions were removed and she was able to continue to get work. The couple officially separated in 2007, but got a divorce the next year in 2008. She soon got engaged to one of the women that she was talking to online, but their relationship wouldn't last long either. In 2007 is when she got her full-time job and began working at Crescent Care Long-Term Care Home in Woodstock, Ontario. So for those who don't know, long-term care homes are also often referred to as nursing homes or continuing care facilities. They are a residential space where residents live and they are provided a wide range of health and personal care services. They are for Canadians with medical and physical needs who require 24-hour nursing care. Elizabeth worked the night shift and she was in a position where she was in charge. When she first started, Elizabeth was described as caring and professional. However, she would continue to struggle with substance abuse. I assume that at first she was doing a good job of hiding this from her colleagues. 
While at caressant care, Elizabeth would begin to unravel. Instead of caring for her patients, she began to take out her anger on them. She would use insulin as her weapon, and Elizabeth would murder several of her patients and residents of caressant care. Oh my god. We're about to get into it. It this is this is gonna be heavy. Yeah, just the line using insulin as her weapon, like it's it's extremely hard to wrap I mean it's hard to wrap your head around kind of any of these cases, but this one is a strange one. Her first murder victim was a man by the name of James Silcox. He went by Jim. He was found dead in his bed in the hours between August tenth and eleventh in two thousand seven only months after she had began working at Crescent Care. He was 84 years old and was a Second World War veteran. Aww. I know. Jim. I put in our outline a bunch of their obituaries, but honestly, we're not going to have time to go through all of them, but I've linked all of the obituaries I could find in our description, so if you guys want to kind of take a look and get to know the, the victims a little bit better, there's not a bunch of information, but there's a lot of information about their family members. So, so yeah, he had a wife and many kids and grandkids as well as great grandkids. The family thought it was sort of weird, but you know, he was 84 years old. It was also reported that they had requested an autopsy, but the coroner's office had suggested they don't. So it's kind of hard to tell. Elizabeth's second murder victim was an 84 year old man named Maurice Granat. He went by Mo. He was found dead in his bed on December 23rd of 2007. Mo was a grandfather of five and a great grandfather of 11 children. Elizabeth was not only killing her patients, she was also stealing their pain medication. It's reported a couple different ways. So one is that they would die and then she would kind of take the surplus and like pretend that she had given it to them. Mm -hmm. Another way it's reported is that she would give residents laxatives instead of their pain medication. I know this is horrendous. Oh my. Yes. Like girl. And speechless. Yes. She'd pocket their medication and give it, which I, I just feel like is almost unnecessary. Like a lot of residents in long-term care have dementia and i'm not saying that all of them do they do not a lot of them have a different you know there's a ton of different reasons to be in long-term care but like maybe not a laxative like that's just like rude to me like it's like an extra like you're just causing them pain yeah that's also going to dehydrate them like they could literally probably just die from dehydration at that age you know and the fact that she's also in charge i feel like no one's questioning her yeah it kind of makes it easier for her to do something like this for sure Definitely. The other thing she would do is often skim off the top when meds were delivered, which again, she's, you know, the night nurse in charge. And at night, there is a lot less staff management Mm -hmm. are not there, right? Like, it's not like all your regular staff that are there, like Monday to Friday, eight to four or whatever are Mm -hmm. there. They're not. So I think it gave her a lot of freedom and a lot more freedom than she should have had. Um, I'm not like exactly clear on all the nursing license restrictions and stuff, but like to me, because she'd been restricted before, the restriction could be lifted, but I feel like there still should be some type of note on her file that like she is a nurse that probably should work during the day with other supervision and not just have like kind of free reign at night. Yeah, I agree. The other thing we all know is that there's a serious, especially nowadays, there's a serious lack of nurses, PSWs, care aides, anyone in that field, especially in long-term care. We saw the effects of that in COVID for sure. So I I think it probably was a, you know, also kind of maybe desperation on the part of the long-term care home to have mm-hmm. a nurse who appeared to be doing very well and that she was on board to work night shifts with maybe isn't something that's so favorable, but gosh, this is, yeah, it's awful. So she was obviously fully taking advantage of extremely vulnerable people and of her position and power. During this time, she continued online dating. 
she eventually met a woman named Sheila, who lived in northern Saskatchewan. They planned a visit for an entire week, so Elizabeth planned to fly down to stay with Sheila, you know, spend the week with her so that they could get to know each other. They had been talking online for a while, and they figured this was the next step in the relationship. This is scary to me, because could you imagine having to entertain someone? Like, it's no. way different to text someone than it is to be in person with them, mm-hmm. but so different and could you imagine like they show up and you're just like especially for a whole week that's a lot what if you don't end up getting along or you know first two minutes you realize like oh my god no i cannot which is kind of what happens to sheila Sheila. so sheila is interviewed in the fifth estate episode and she says you know she was excited they had been talking for a while this because off the plane she's kind of dressed to the nines like red lipstick and she's like all right like you know this is okay and they their first interaction is a lot so sheila says elizabeth was telling sheila how much she loves her and how she's so excited to be with her and how she's been telling people about their relationship and sheila is like kind of like a whoa (laughs) like okay like tone it down a notch like we're just meeting for the first time now yeah so the first night they spend together sheila says the two are intimate and when she wakes up the next morning she's kind of thinking like this is not my girl (laughs) so like this was fun but like then one day that's enough yeah like probably like thanks for the hookup bye like <laughs> like now because of the decisions they've made she's like stuck in this for yeah. for a week for seven days mm-hmm. so she has to entertain this basically stranger for the next six days of the visit also when the vis- <laughs> i just want to point out like true crime wise this is not safe don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. If you are doing something like this, if you truly meet someone online and you take your closest girlfriend, you tell her, let's let's do a fun trip to Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah. And while we're there, I will yeah. go on a couple of dates with this person who I've been talking to. And your friend is your backup who's sitting in the hotel room or she's doing something else, but she's around, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's for real people. <laughs> It's a rule. You have to do this. Yes. So when the visit came to an end, Sheila broke it off. She kind of told her, you know, this is this is not it. So you're going to have, you know, we're both going to have to move on. And she said that Beth had thrown several temper tantrums during the week and basically had like weird vibes. And she was like, no. oh, no. Yeah. She was like, this is not not for me. So Elizabeth went back to online dating. Around this time, she also began publishing her poetry under a different name. Here's an excerpt from one of her poems. As it soothingly pools, it smothers her pain. Sweet stiletto so sharp, craves another cut, obeying a call. She moves to his gut, blade traces a line from navel to spine, grating on rib bones, slicing intestine. Uh, what? <laughs> Obviously very creepy. So she starts, I guess, I guess she's a, um, an artistic type. I don't know. So she starts putting pieces of her murders into her poems, but she's not murdering this way. Like she's not, there's no knives involved. There's no, it's insulin based murders. So I don't know if these are her fantasies or. Sounds like it. But it's very strange. And obviously these became like super, not sensational, but like very well known once it came out that she had done all this because it's just very, it's creepy. It's creepy. Very creepy. Elizabeth's third murder victim was a woman by the name of Gladys Millard. She was 87 years old and she was murdered on October 14th of 2011. She was discovered dead in her bed and assumed to have passed away in her sleep. 
See, that's a thing that's so hard about a care home like that is that they're, you know, reaching the end of their life. They're, they're old, yeah. they need help. So you don't really question as much as you would, you know, other scenarios, but it's so, it's just so sad knowing the actual truth. Yeah, you're hundred percent right because it's just, and usually the, I think the nurse in charge is mostly in charge of being the one to say like, Hmm, this was suspicious mm -hmm. or this was weird or like, they're not feeling well. So let's send them to hospital. Like, it's like, that's yeah. the person who's making those calls. Right. So if the person who's making those calls isn't flagging this down as something strange, mm -hmm. then everyone just assumes 87 years old. It's not, it's not like a 14 year old passing yeah. away in their sleep where you're like, we need to figure out what happened. Uh -huh. Like this is, you know, it's, it's yeah. somewhat normal. Mm -hmm. Gladys was born in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, and she was a beloved mother and grandmother. She was murdered near her birthday. Oh, that's so true. Oh, <sighs> She was a longtime member of the Knox Presbyterian Church in Woodstock. Okay. Elizabeth's fourth victim was a woman by the name of Helen Matheson. And when she was 95 years old, on October 26th of 2011, she was murdered by Elizabeth. She really murdered these... Quick. It like, was like at the, around the same like time. Like two at the same time and then a yeah. break. And then two at the same time and then like... So I feel like with a lot of this is what we're gonna like kind of see is it's connected to like moments in her life where she's not doing very well and I don't think she was ever I mean doing great from what it seems because it seems like she had a lot of struggles but it seems obvious to me that they're like spurts of anger or mm -hmm. you know it's kind of like it's that kind of thing and then she does take these little breaks which I mean I I don't know what that means but Helen was found crying out in pain and was sent to the hospital and that's where she passed away and that just makes me sad practice of nursing i think is like so sacred and so like amazing people that choose to like dedicate their lives to mm -hmm. to caring for others and for her to like break that trust yeah and i think what's even harder is when you're placing a loved one in long-term care it's a very difficult decision and is usually not the decision of the person being placed so you're sort of as a family member as a loved one trusting this home and trusting the staff that they're going to take care of your mother your grandmother your great-grandmother your partner mm -hmm. and it's like such a violation of that trust and i think that's what's the most like awful thing here helen was a beloved mother and grandmother and she was a longtime active member of the inner kip united church a couple weeks later, Elizabeth murdered 96-year-old Mary Zuerwinski. On November 7th of 2011, you know, just really a few weeks later, Mary was found dead. I was unable to find Mary's obituary, so I don't really have much information about her. But if anyone does, feel free to send it over to us because we'd love to, to add it to the episode later. And it's amazing how old some of these people were 96, able to, yeah. like 96. Are you kidding me? Like, I wonder I how know. many years left she had. I know. And I feel like if you've like made it there, you're just like, let like me go whenever I go. Like, yeah, I, I made it to 96. Like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, yeah, I can't I can't really find much. And I'm sure that is because the family doesn't want much to be available out there, which I totally respect. But we'll just say that, unfortunately, she was another one of Elizabeth's victims. It seems like Elizabeth took a break from murdering for a while. At this point, she goes on a cruise on a vacation with one of her ex-girlfriends. They had booked the tickets before they broke up. So it's kind of like an awkward thing <laughs> and i guess they decided to go together anyway that by sucks. july i i know <laughs> just gets cruise sounds too. awful they have like the smallest rooms ever so it's like you're literally stuck with this person that you don't want to be with right now 
It's so true, but then you're like, do you just like give away the cruise to someone else? Like, no, I'm one. I'm gonna go on that cruise. Like, I yeah, bought my ticket. Yeah, right. But I couldn't do it with an ex unless I had plans to get back together with them, and this was like kind of like a ploy to see like how things would go. I, I feel like I would go find a good-looking man and <laughs> and move into his room. <laughs> yeah, and stay in his room or like flirt with one of the workers or something and have him give me one of the free rooms or something like yeah. figure it out that way but you're right I, I wouldn't say no I would go so by July of 2013 so like about you know two years later so the last murder we discussed was in 2011 now we're in 2013 she'd be murdering again oh shoot so she took a few years off yes which is strange right like there's some yeah. psychology in there for sure her sixth victim was Helen Young the nine-year-old was found murdered on July 14th it's reported that she was in visible pain on July 13th and was found passed away on the 14th. It was not easy to find a picture of Helen. I believe, again, that her family wanted to keep things private, so we'll just mention her name, but we'll unfortunately move on to Elizabeth's seventh murder victim. Just keeps going. Yes. Elizabeth's seventh murder victim was on March 28th of 2014. Her name was Maureen Pickering. She was 78 years old when she was murdered by Elizabeth. So this is a lot younger Mm -hmm. I feel like than the other ones, which I feel like that is, you know, like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Just so frustrating because now it's like she, I feel like she's getting more, more bold. Like she doesn't care. Yeah. You know? She, yeah. She has balls. Mm -hmm, for sure. Her obituary said that she passed peacefully at Crescent Care Nursing Home. She had lots of friends and family that loved her. And this part, oh, in, I had chills when I read because at the end of her obituary it says special thanks to the staff at Crescent Care. No, that's so yes. true. Which is such a like a, a nice thing to They don't like, know. But it's such a nice thing to say yeah. when your loved one is at a long-term care facility or a nursing home or whatever and yeah. then you're like so thankful that the staff did such a good job. And I'm sure that there were many staff at Crescent Care at this time who were doing an excellent job. But how eerie now like yeah looking back oh my god <sighs> throughout her job at crescent care elizabeth was obviously not the perfect nurse but at this point nobody had any idea about the murders she but she was messing up a lot she was showing up to work intoxicated she had had many complaints against her and accusations she was caught stealing medications and making medication errors and other staffs were not a fan of Elizabeth, which I am not surprised. Mm -hmm. In March of 2014, she was finally fired for a medication error. Finally. She had been suspended four times in the past for similar mistakes. Four times. I'm sorry, especially since you basically got your license revoked in the first place. And then you start here after all of that. Like, you shouldn't have that many yeah. exceptions or, or whatever. Like, So I don't know if... Crescent Care was aware that the license was ever restricted at first. I don't know if that's part of kind of the restriction rules is that when oh. then they're lifted, it's no longer on your record. I don't know, but I'm assuming so. I feel like that should be illegal. I feel like anywhere should know like what happened in your, I don't know. Yeah, nurses because... can let us know because I'm not sure. Ugh. She was also reported to the Ontario College of Nurses again. And from what the public can tell, so the information that we have, nothing was done. There's something about maybe, you know, it's kind of what I've been getting from different sources. It's that something about there being no proof or, you know, whatever. And instead of getting fired, her union negotiated that she be let go and have a letter of recommendation written for her. 
this is a truth or rumor because again a lot of makes information in this case but this is the information that i could find and with that i'm gonna have marie read to you guys another one of her poems where am i left then what would they say yes what will they say when the real truth is known when it is found out what i do alone yo she legit is actually (laughs) creepy (laughs) yeah she really is and if you guys see pictures like i just feel like this is exactly what you're like picturing in your head like she i feel like she looks (laughs) like she sounds like she just it's so creepy like why are you writing about this stuff in a in a poetic way She's unwell, that makes it like, yeah, but that makes it a hundred like a hundred percent more creepy yeah. that it's just like a poem and not necessarily like a diary. You know what I mean? Like she's trying yes. to make it sound like like artistic, like, like, like yeah, beautiful like, or like yeah. yeah, romanticizing like the what what yes. she's basically murdering. Yes, for sure. It wouldn't be long until Elizabeth was working again. She got hired at the Meadow Park Care Centre in London, Ontario under a one-year contract. There she continued her murders in August of 2014. She murdered her next and last victim, a man by the name of Arpad Horvat, on August 31st of 2014. He was 75 years old. Arpad had gone through several medical challenges, which his family had heavily supported him in. He was an international big game hunter and a past president of 29 years of the Hungarian Club in London, and for 50 years was the owner of the Chief Engineer Central Tool and Dye Limited of London. After Elizabeth's last murder, people around her started noticing that she was not well. A neighbor is interviewed in the Fifth Estate episode, and he tells us that he kind of asks around this time, like, are you, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. She straight up tells him that she was struggling and that she had been fired for stealing medication. And then she tells him that she also got fired from a different job because she was high and gave a patient medication that caused him to almost die. Which is like, this is a lot to be telling. <laughs> like, yeah. your, your neighbor was just like, hey, how are you? And <laughs> it's almost like... It's like you ask someone like are you okay like expecting them to be like yeah are yeah, you fine no like it's a bad yeah. day or something like not to like word vomit literally that you almost killed a patient when you actually have killed several but you know what i mean yeah. like yeah it's like it's almost like a rhetorical question yeah. yes exactly <sighs> around this time elizabeth decides to go back to rehab so on september 16th of 2016 she checks herself into a rehab center in Toronto called the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Soon after her arrival, she had told staff something very alarming. And because of this, the police were called, as well as the College of Nurses of Ontario. The police started an investigation. She also messaged a childhood friend and told him that someone that was under her care died because of something that she did at work. And she told him that it wasn't an accident. Wow. Oh. But keep in mind that if she had not began to admit to this, no one would know. No one would know. And how many others, like, how many others would there be? No one knows. She then told him that it happened more than once. He also contacted the police and encouraged Elizabeth to tell them the truth. She was now officially under investigation. I wonder what made her start saying what she's done. I think it was, she was just like so out of control. Like I think yeah. a lot of this is her being out of control, but I think she was at the point where she just like couldn't even function anymore. Like she couldn't show up to work. She couldn't yeah. do these things. People around her were noticing that she was not well. Like I just, I think that it's it's a lot of that. I don't really think it's guilt. No, because eight people. <laughs> Definitely not guilt. So <laughs> the Toronto police first interviewed her on the 29th of September, 2016. It was a two hour long confession video. And in the confession, she admitted that she knew the difference between right and wrong. 
But she called kind of her feelings that, like, were out of control at the time of the murders the Red Surge, which is kind of, I guess, a feeling that came over her. She said that God or the devil or whatever wanted me to do it. And after one of the murders, she described the surging and then said that she felt laughter afterwards, which she described was like it was a crackling from the pit of hell. So all very strange. Not like outward laughter, but she like had the feeling of laughter inside of her. Oh, she's not well. No. She told police that she tried to stop killing and that had told friends and a former partner, as well as her pastor, what she'd done. But no one took her seriously. She also said that she believed God was telling her to kill. In one of the cases, she believed that her victim was no longer enjoying life. So I think it's debated whether Elizabeth is an angel of mercy or an angel of death, which is often a healthcare worker who, you know, quote unquote, puts their patient out of their misery as a form of serial killer. But I think it is kind of debated whether she falls under this category or not. But from, from this confession, it does kind of feel like she does. But also, you know, I'm not getting that she's doing it for mercy. Like, well, not that like that's a correct thing to do, but I think it is, all I'm saying is I think it's debated whether she perfectly fits under this category of serial killer or not. Well, especially with the fact that, um, I don't remember if this was a truth or rumor, but that she was giving them laxatives and taking their pain meds. Like you don't want the best for them if you're doing things like that. So it's like, "Mm, sorry, girl. I don't think so. Elizabeth never claimed to get pleasure from killing, but she stated that she felt horrible after each victim, which I think we can take with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. The next day after the interview, she resigned her nursing status with the College of Nurses. I mean, I guess it was inevitable whether she did it or they did it for her at this Mm -hmm. point, like the police were involved and she knew it was coming. She was arrested on the 24th of October of 2016 at the age of 49. On October 25th, She's charged with eight counts of first-degree murder. The next day, the Woodstock police released details of her murders. The public was shocked. On January 13th of 2017, she is charged with four counts of attempted murder and two counts of aggravated assault. Because what I didn't tell you is that there were patients that she did this to. She did not successfully murder, but that she admitted to. So I'm going to name some of those patients or residents right now. So in 2007, there was a woman named Clotilde Adriano and her sister or otherly reported sister-in-law, unsure, Albina Demidrios. There was also Michael Priddle and Wayne Hedges and then Sandra Towler and Beverly Bertram. June 1st, 2017, she pleaded guilty to all charges that she faced. And because she pleaded guilty, there was no trial. I mean, she didn't really have a choice. She had, like she fully admitted to right. all of them. Yeah. But like thankfully, she kind of made it easy for and oh, just having to like come to terms with your loved one's death and then finding out probably years later mm-hmm. that they were murdered. And I'm, destroys like, I'm you. so curious to know how they found out. Like, did they find out through the press or did they make sure to contact the families beforehand or? I think they contacted the families beforehand. That would like, imagine turning the news on and all of a sudden you like realize. Yeah, no, that'd be awful. That would be so bad. Yes. During her sentencing hearing, the victims and their loved ones got a chance to read their impact statements in court. I really like impact statements. Yes, me too. It gives people a chance, especially people like Mm -hmm. this who've been like shocked years later, and you need that like that. It's almost like closure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you said what you wanted to say, and hopefully that helps you heal. But I think they're so powerful. 
Yes, definitely. I completely agree. Elizabeth apologized in court that day, and she told everyone that she was truly sorry. She was sentenced to life in prison. Her sentences were to be served concurrently, meaning that she has no chance of parole for 25 years. The judge could have sentenced her to eight consecutive terms, totaling in 200 years, but the justice recognized that the public would likely never have known about her crimes unless she had confessed. She will be eligible for parole in 2041. However, it's very unlikely that she is that she gets parole, that she's let out. As I mentioned, Elizabeth confessed to her crimes to several people before she got officially caught. She told a former boyfriend, a student nurse working at Crescent Care, a pastor and his wife, a lawyer and an ex-girlfriend, and none of them did anything about it. I feel really bad that she told a student. Because like yeah. as a student, like Yeah, you were a student nurse. Like you, like you studied yeah, nursing like you, before you decided that wasn't for you. Yeah. So the pressure it's, you feel in a placement as a student. You don't know what to do. Like yeah. that's and the rough. impact this has had on their lives, whether mm -hmm. they should have came forward or not. Like this is it's just it's really horrible so before i give you a speech on how to protect your loved ones in long-term care how do you feel it's really sad and it, clearly she was not well and not in her right mind i'm thankful that she had had admitted to it and i feel like it was almost like a cry for help on her end for admitting it to so many people for yeah. someone to then actually you know take her seriously and do something about it Mm -hmm. um, because like you said, if she hadn't admitted it, she never would have gotten caught. No, we um, would not know. All of these victims that we spoke about, they all seem just like the cute, like their pictures. They're Lovely. Just yeah. yeah. They're just, like, and nice it people. just makes me so yeah. sad. They did not deserve this. And not to mention that death by an insulin overdose is not a quiet, peaceful one. These people mm -hmm. were in pain when they passed away, which I think yeah. is, like, important to mention because it's not like she was just, like, I'm just going to, like, mm -hmm. la di da Like, it's not like these people peacefully just, like, went and it was their decisions. Like, it was the complete opposite, which is very horrible. So if you're wondering, how do I keep my loved ones safe in a nursing home? There's a couple of things you can do. So... Obviously, you know, keep your eyes open and drop in and visit at different times, different hours, whenever you can, and look for those red flags. Any change in personality or mood, sleeping or eating habits in your loved one, or physical activity could show signs of abuse. And stay in touch with them as much as you can. I know it was extremely hard during COVID, but write them letters. There's often recreation staff that can help set up FaceTimes if you can call the nursing home whenever you can talk with them and like i said you know drop in the morning and the afternoon and the evenings to kind of get to know the staff if you are really suspicious that something is going on you can use technology so if you know if you need to set up a camera or do a lot of video calls and you know this is obviously in extreme circumstances but not everyone is a good person which is very unfortunate and that goes with people that decide to have careers in these types of fields so yes you should l learn to get to know the staff at your long-term care homes where your loved ones are living but keep in mind that obviously there can be some rotten apples in there and i think mm -hmm. that's what elizabeth has really taught us so elizabeth we are glad that you are in jail and that yeah. you're hopefully also getting the help that you need uh, but yeah this was a really interesting case i started it not understanding and fully like knowing how big of a case it would be mm -hmm. um, but i thought it was really interesting for us to cover and especially with everything that happened in long-term care after the pandemic this is kind of kind of an inside look at how things could 
it could be a slippery slope in. I know there was a lot of, I know we don't have time to cover all of it, but there's a lot of things that kind of came out of this case in terms of the nursing college and long-term care legislation to try and prevent things from happening like this in the future. Man, it, I think it is wild how she could do this and get away with it just because of the nature of these homes and how they are meant usually for seniors and people that, mm -hmm. you know, passing away happens every day in these homes. It's, you know, not every day, but it's it's common. It could happen twice in a week or two residents pass away. The worst so, part is that she would have gotten away with it if she didn't uh, yes. start admitting herself. So with that being said, this week we'll be donating to Elder Abuse Prevention Ontario. This is from their website. Elder Abuse Prevention Ontario is a provincial organization recognized for its leadership in elder abuse prevention in the province, providing education, training, resource development, and information about the increasingly complex issue of elder abuse. If you'd like to contribute to Elder Abuse Prevention Ontario, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram and TikTok bio. Sources for this case will be in the description. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time.